Hi friends, this is a podcast about belief, healing, and humanity. What makes us who we are? What makes the world tick? And how can we leave it a little bit better than how we found it? This isn't a how-to guide, even though the title suggests it. How to be human is about finding hope in our stories, being better listeners and agents for change. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. This is How to Be Human. As I've been recording this season, I've been contemplating how I was going to tell my story. And I've wrestled with what I felt like my heart has been like (laughs) encouraging me to talk about. And I've been parsing out whether or not that's because I selfishly want to be talking about it or if I feel like it will help other people know that they're not alone. So it's been really difficult to find the space to sit down and to press record and just talk. So my hope is that in telling you pieces of what I've been dealing with this past year, that you'll be invited in to think about trauma differently, that you will get to know a side of me that you haven't known prior especially if you follow Queer and Faith, if you read my blogs, if you look at my socials, um, you haven't seen this part of me because I have been trying to figure out how to talk about it. Because that's the kind of person I am. I process everything out loud, transparently in front of the world, mainly because it holds me accountable. And also in the same vein, it lets people know that they're not by themselves. And the primary reason for creating this podcast and for starting what I hope to be a really long, fruitful endeavor of seasons that I give you was to let you know that you're not alone in being human, that you're not alone in being messy, that you're not alone in in feeling harm and shame and guilt and discouragement and wanting to make yourself better in whatever way that means for you, and then also wanting to create change around you in the world. So yeah, there is a part of my story that I go to because I can tell you right now that I think that's what people want to hear, especially coming from a queer Christian context because that is my platform. I talk about being queer. I talk about faith. I talk about the messiness of what I believe and don't believe, if I believe at all. I talk about um, feelings and emotions. And and now I talk a lot about trauma. And now I talk a lot about grief. And I also talk a lot about joy. So I've been telling this story for probably the past two and a half, three years now since I started Queer in Faith. And I've been talking about reconciling sexuality and talking about, you know, my family origin and where I grew up and where I came from and sharing kind of this pivotal moment for me that I believe in my body and being that I had with God um, telling me that I was completely whole as I am and telling me that I that I had a purpose here and of course not giving me what that was but in in part giving me peace Um, and that's the story I tell because I know that's the story that people really 
need to hear. They need to know that they're good. They need to know that they're whole. Um, but there's more to me than just that message. And right now in this season of my life, I am dealing with the unimaginable. And on the outside, I appear to be a very normal and capable human being. And on the inside, I am completely and utterly torn apart. So I want to talk about that. I want to tell that story because I want to validate it. And I also want to validate anyone's experience within the realms of trauma. So this is a trigger warning now. Um, I'm going to be talking about three different tiers of trauma. I'm going to be talking about family trauma. I'm going to be talking about violent trauma. And I'm going to be talking about spiritual trauma. And ultimately, overall, I'm going to be talking about what the hell do we do when really bad things happen. And I want to just preface now that I don't have a how-to guide, and this isn't a step to how to come out of the other side of something really bad. This is to just basically share that shitty, fucking, terrible things happen in the world. And that we can still live, and we can still find ways to search for the remnants of who we were prior, and to rebuild, and to rewire because we have to. So I hope that today in sharing this piece of who I am and what I'm going through and what I'm navigating showcases to you that we have embedded in us a resilience to overcome and lets you know that you're not alone in your pain, you're not alone in what you're processing, you're not alone in your grief, and that we're not meant to go through that alone. So thanks for listening. Anniversaries of bad things are strange. They remind you that you're still limping from the mental exhaustion of PTSD. They remind you that you still have a very long road ahead for what is hoped to be justice. They remind you that everything in your life has altered and simply, it hurts. The temperature is changing here. The season is moving into summer, and it feels like it did then, a year ago, when my life was robbed. But it doesn't look like the same. It's entirely rearranged and still being put together into something new. Not significantly better, but just new. There's still grief wrapped around the shedding. There's loss of friendships because I'm different. And there's growth because in this messy depth you have to get intimate. Trauma makes you get intimate. I'm rewriting the word healing right now because honestly, I don't even really know if I believe in it. I know. Part of the podcast title has healing in it. Currently, it feels like a false hope and truth to me, but I feel that could be because of the societal idea of it. You know, healing historically put forth to me is when you no longer are hurting. All has been made new. There's no more rain to be found there in your wounds. You can't even see them.
But the reality of experiencing a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events in your life will alter the word healing. At least it is for me. Healing is no longer marked by sunshine over the mountain you have to climb, but by the days and moments you can remain present. The times where I'm not having flashbacks to the violent trauma I experienced. The times that I'm not having heart palpitations because I'm thinking about how I have to go home and have relations with a family who doesn't see all of me. Or the times when I'm sitting in a church that actually does affirm all of me, but I can't be present there. Because there's harm. Healing isn't a wound that completely disappears from the mental realm. Healing doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're miraculously okay. You know, in the Christian context, in the way that I've been raised and, I mean, really handed a message, is that God heals you. And then you're made new. And all of the bad things that happen in the world, they just disappear. The actuality is is that that's not actually true. (laughs) It's true that God makes you new in terminology of meaning that you've been like resurrected from a past life of not knowing God or having an intimate relationship with God. But what isn't true is that bad things stop happening. And that's the narrative that I have been handed is that once you have entered into this spiritual practice of Christianity, everything is safe. And I've known that not to be true for quite a long time. My story contains so much shit. But healing inside of the bad stuff, no one's ever given me a recipe for that. What to do with that. So I've been redefining that. And this is where I am. Healing is living in spite of the very bad thing that took place in your body, in your world, and in your mind. And if healing makes you angry right now, I feel you. I'm wrestling for the goodness that I deserve, and I'm limping, and I'm not hiding it. I'm not just wrestling with myself, I'm wrestling with God. I'm pleading. Not to go backwards, not to have it go away, but to show me how to live in it. And this wrestling right now, it's not even out of anger anymore. It's purely based in rediscovering me so that I may live, that I may love people well, and that I may do good here. The traumatic event that I experienced last year, which was life-threatening, which literally could have taken my life, has forced me into my body, has forced me into having intimacy with me. And I can understand that that's not the experience for all people who have something this complex happen to them. But there's no other way out. I can run from my trauma that I've experienced in my life for a really long time, and I can be exhausted. I can run so hard and so far that now I'm in the middle of a valley and there's no one there but me. And it's not fair. Depending on how we've experienced trauma, it's not fair. 
It's not fair that someone can come into your world, steal something from you, and then you have to work like hell to not even get it back, but to rewire and restore because neurologically, that's what happens. When trauma takes place in our life, even if it's acute or if, or it's happening over a long period of time, your brain is like a massive circuit board. And what happens is someone comes in with scissors and hands and pulls everything to pieces. And nothing feels right. Because it's not. And the really amazing thing about the brain is that no one can see what's going on. Only you can feel what's going on or in your headspace think about what's going on. And so because of this life-changing event, I've kind of been forced to just rest into my body for maybe the first time in my life. To be honest, yeah, the first time in my life I've been forced into this strange abyss of volleying between calmness, massive waves of anxiety, anger, grief, and then somehow still threaded in between all of that is joy. How have we been marked by harm? Are we naming harm? Are we naming where it is? Are we excavating it out of ourselves? I don't really know if you can take it out. I don't really know if you can take traumatic harm out of your being. In all honesty, for me personally, it becomes a part of my story. Whether or not I like it, it's there. It's woven into the fabric now. So the question for me in the last few months has been, what do I do with it? What do I do with this part of my story, this part of the fabric that I didn't ask for, that's now a part of me, and I can't get it out? But what do I do? And I've been turning to every single resource I knew before then, and my faith is so important to me. It's very core, central piece of how I identify in the world, how I navigate emotions and taking care of myself and other people, it is a part of me. And I honestly can say that I've turned towards my faith and I have no clue what to do with grief there. No one's taught me about grief there. All the stories that I've heard are about the triumph of, of joy. They talk nothing about what has been coined before to me, bright sadness. We don't talk about grief. We don't talk about trauma. We don't do it enough. We don't do it in the church. And certainly in my relationship with the church, it hasn't been a subject that I've heard anything about. I was listening to another podcast recently with my partner. It's a pretty big podcast called Terrible, Thanks for Asking. And the host was invited to the Tree of Life synagogue where the shooting took place last year. That took the lives of innocent people practicing their faith. And she was talking with a rabbi who was explaining the Jewish practice of grief and the different phases of that and how grief wasn't meant to be done alone, how community surrounds those closely impacted by death or an event. Literally, the, the, the 
moment after the conclusion of the funeral, there is a seven-day period known as Shiva, which literally means sitting, where people sit with those who are in grief and listen and are attuned to any needs that they may ask for. And it doesn't end there. There are phases where the community remains attuned to those who are grieving, who have dealt with the loss of a loved one, or something as traumatic as what took place there, a shooting, the unimaginable. And it's marked by this like rhythm of time, but it's not forgotten, and it's remembered, and it's t taken care of in community with one another. Grief is not meant to be in isolation. And I've been holding on to that because it was a really beautiful, beautiful thing to hear and to imagine if we practiced that, if we allowed our emotions to be present and not stuffed away or hidden. And so I've been kind of rummaging through my mind and through my body and through like what I know about the Bible um, to figure that out. One of the things that I've been thinking about is that like every really massive thing that takes place in the Bible pretty much starts at grief. Like all the really terrible things that happen in the Old Testament start with grief. They start with something traumatic, violence, death. It starts with grief. And in those stories, all of those stories, you're invited in to emotion. Like, you can't run away from what's taking place. You have to walk into it, walk through it, and then know that it's there with you for the rest of your life. You're marked by it. And don't get me wrong, like, I have been a person who expresses emotion, I cry and I tell people how much they mean to me. But there's something about reevaluating and being forced into having to look at what it means to actually grieve and what it means to, to name harm has made me reevaluate how I express emotion and how I sit in my feelings and as opposed to just running away, as opposed to ramming through the wall in a fight-flight survival mode, which is basically how I've lived my entire life because of trauma. And my mind just goes, <laughs> I have so much work to do. My childhood consisted of going to church and honoring my parents. My adolescence consisted of going to church and honoring my parents and wrestling with, oh, I think I might have an, an identity too, but I don't get to have it because I have to adhere to like the law that's been handed to me. And during my adolescence, like in high school, I was so involved with church. <laughs> I was so involved with wanting people to know who Jesus was. So much so that I was very limitedly involved in knowing who I was. Which now I would totally like to tell you that Jesus isn't about you not knowing who you are. Jesus is about inviting you in to know who you are so that you can know Jesus. <laughs> so that you can know God. So that you can know your spirit. Or just know you. Without a religious context, 
you are always invited to know who you are. Um, but that wasn't the mindset that I had. That's not the message that I was given. That's not what I was equipped with. So when I got to college, I was 18, and I had no real relationship experience because I didn't understand my sexuality. I didn't understand my gender. I had been preconditioned to know that as a woman, I didn't have emotions and I didn't express them. And I had been shamed to stay in a box. So shame was like a really big aspect of making it so hard for me to come out to the point that when I did come out, I went right back in. I sat on the phone with my dad for like 45 minutes and I finally was like, hey, um, I haven't been dating men. And he's like, I know. And... And the reason I was calling them was to ask for help because I'd broken up with my first girlfriend. I was devastated. Hello. I was 21 at the time and having second adolescence because I had never been in a relationship with someone emotionally that way. Um, and it wasn't even like healthy in emotion because I didn't even know what that was at 21. Um, and so I said that, and my dad, you know, his tone shifted, and out of fear and shame and adhering to, like, this policy that had been driven into my core, it's like, I'm not really even sure about it. Like, I think I just need help. Honestly, I really just wanted help dealing with that breakup. <laughs> but I ran right back in um, because I was disobeying. And so this, like, spiraled out into... Um, them seeing me, I had lost a shit ton of weight, um, and I was acting like an absolute off-the-rocker human being because I was screaming for someone to see me and to love me and to affirm me, and that was not happening. Um, I drove home that following weekend because I told them that I was depressed. I told them that I was not okay. And I went to see our family general practitioner. We walked in, and this guy broke, like, every freaking health code, you know, like, law, period. We're in the room, and, like, they're having a conversation about my sexuality in front of me. And I'm lying about being queer at this point to get what I need. Because I knew I needed antidepressant medication. I didn't really know why or how that worked, but I knew that there was this pill and that it could probably make me not feel anything. So that would have been a great idea. And what happened is this guy prays over me in a doctor's office, okay? And he's like, I'm so proud of the decision that you've made, which is me. I've lied. I'm lying about making a decision to not be queer because I was like, all right, is this way safer if they just don't know? Because that way I can still like maintain a balance of the two worlds that won't go together. And so I get the medication after I'm prayed over, after I'm being praised for turning away from this deep, dark sin. And I go back to my college town and I don't even process what happened. Like, literally in the last year of my life, because of this violent trauma that happened, and because I explained that everything is on the floor and I have to put it back together, 
I have had to go back to like 21 and even prior and be like, holy shit, this is compacted trauma after compacted trauma of events in my life. And like, I got to tend to this. Um, so I go back and I have this antidepressant medication happy pill that got prayed over and I start taking it and it does help. Um, but I realize I really need counseling to like talk about being queer. Um, and at this time, I'm very naive. I'm still very sheltered. I know I'm 21. I'm extremely privileged. My parents have paid for everything. I'm immensely privileged in my experience in college. And um, where do you go? I call them again. Like, hey, I really need to see someone. So I trust them. This is the second time. And they take me to a therapist, right? And I go, and the first time is kind of weird. Um, he's a Christian counselor, air quotes again. And he gives me like a, a CD to listen to. And we don't really talk about uh, me coming out. We're just kind of like talking about family relationships and friends I have. And, and I don't listen to the CD. This is when I know that God has like always been for me. Because I can only imagine where my life would have been if I had made several other different choices. I don't listen to the CD. I come back for the second appointment. I go into the appointment and I ask the question. I'm like, so like, am I always going to feel this way? And the counselor tells me, well, yeah, you're always going to have attraction, but you don't have to act on it. At this point, I had like no context for conversion therapy or context for like forced celibacy on queer folks, but this is exactly what was happening. <laughs> he was leading me down the conversation portal to tell me, well, you could be celibate and then you're all good with God. I got up that moment and said, okay, that's all I need to know. Like, I'm always going to feel this way and like, I'm good, whatever. I'm going to go struggle by myself. Um, and so this is kind of the repeated pattern of like survival, like just ramming through the walls. I'm not processing any of this emotion. I'm just doing what I can do to survive. Um, and this is actually leading up to the part of the story that I tell people a lot. Uh, I was drinking like crazy. I was hanging out with my ex because that's a really good idea. And I ended up binge drinking for like five hours one day and then my ex and her current girlfriend again what the hell was I doing they were like oh we're gonna go snort some hydrocodone and I was like sure I'm gonna do that too and I ended up having to go to the ER that night and that was the that was the pivotal moment of knowing that God loved me knowing that I was okay because my friend sat me down 48 hours later. Like, the two people in the world who really saw me sat me down. They were the people who saved my life, who took me to the ER. They sat me down, and they were like, you were saying all these crazy things. You were having a conversation with someone in the room, and you were just crying and, like, thanking. And, and I had this, like, epiphany moment as they're retelling the story to, like, this phrase, these phrases that were being repeated to me while I was in the hospital. And it was, you are good, I love you, and I have plans for you. And, and that's the moment where I was no longer concerned if God was okay with me being gay. I was more concerned with how do I get away from the oppressive nature of my parents 
and how do I get away from this harm because I don't really want to sit in it. I don't want to experience it. It's going to kill me. So that was it. Tied a bow on it. So that was kind of the beginning of me running. That was the beginning of me running from this trauma that had taken place, like a continued trauma of like neglect and non-affirmation and rebuking of a piece of my person. That's like a deep, deep, deep kind of harm. That's why people lose their lives. That's why I tried to lose my life over this, um, because your, your worth and your value is being attacked. And so after having this moment, a, a gift, a real big gift of having what, you know, I believe is just a blessing from God telling me, no, like, I've got you. Um, I spent literally the next five years just running, running like a crazy, crazy hard marathon where no one was going to win, <laughs> running from dealing with this issue, like dealing with the fact that this had happened to me, dealing with the fact that my family was still not affirming me, dealing with the fact that I was still hiding my queerness when I was going home, dealing with the fact that I wasn't still sure of how to like be a Christian in this context, and dealing with the fact that like church really also played a role in harming me like also played a role in handing this message to my family and them handing it to me. And I was just ramming through walls. Like it's so important to name harm. Like it's it's taking power back from this thing that's been holding you down under the water where you couldn't breathe. And the more that you shout under the water what it is, I feel like the more you get to kind of like Mario Brothers level up to the point where you're treading the water, now you're dog paddling on the water, now you're swimming, and you might just get to like shore. I started going to a church in Atlanta that I knew was not affirming, but the charismatic way of the people there and the way that it was welcoming and the way that I was invited in to start asking questions about the Bible that I had never heard before was completely intoxicating and enticing. And it was undeniable that the spirit was there, the spirit is there, that so many really lovely things happen here in this church. Um, But also like so much harm has taken place in this church. And I have now become a part of that piece of fabric in their story. along with several other queer people who've been denied the ability to serve and be in ministry there. But what was taking place is that I was going through spiritual formation really probably for the first time. Um, And I went through baptism there. I was affirmed there. Um, I really just discovered like the fullness of Christ there. Um, And at the same time, was bringing a lot of queer people there because I was being very outward about being a Christian, being queer, loving my body, expressing who I am. It was just all coming out because I was coming out. Um, And I mean, I was bringing like 40 people plus to this church. Naively thinking in a way that that maybe this church would change because of the conversation I was having, having, um, and because of just the representation of, like, Christ in me. Like, I really was just like, this is going to do it. Um, And I also thought that, like, 
if someone was going to have an experience in a church that this space could give that, which it could, up to the point of like realizing, well, I'm not fully affirmed here, I'm not fully loved here, I can't serve here. And that epiphany for me started unraveling when I felt that maybe what God meant by telling me that I had a purpose was was ministry. Throughout my life, that has been a part of my story and a part of what I, the work I've been doing. And once again, I found myself in this in-between space of people who harm and people who need so desperately to be loved and to be told that, that you're good just as you are. So I started discerning seminary and that was the the moment where I realized after a conversation with the pastor of this church that I couldn't do that there and it was an utter devastating moment of of my spiritual life to realize that the same denial that I had experienced from my family was going to happen from the church um, for the rest of my life this is a forever fight this is something I hope that because of me and many other people, we can lessen the burden that shouldn't even belong to us. But it was also crucial to continuing to dive into like the sources of trauma and naming, um, naming spiritual abuse. It's abusive to journey with a person spiritually, to invite them into your congregation, to invite them into your church, to tell them how much you love them, to tell them how much God loves them, to tell them how gifted they are and how wonderful they are as a person. And they become so involved in your community. And because of how we are intrinsically made by God to have a desire for community, that person dives deeper into the community and they want to serve or they want to lead or they want to volunteer. And then you look at them and you tell them, well, I know I told you I love you and I do, but there's this piece about you that's not so great. That is abuse and it kills people. It harms people to a point that they may never come back to church, that they may never continue to journey and figure out what it means to be a Christian or to practice any kind of faith setting. Because it's not just in Christianity that we deny queer people. It's not just there. And it goes without saying, It happens in our daily lives, our conversations. It happens in politics. It happens in other faiths. When you try to strip somebody of their being, you are a part of the reason that they don't want to be here. It's as simple as that. Love with conditions is not love. And that's a really hard thing to sit with as a person who has experienced that from multiple directions. It's hard to sit in the middle of that knowing that that person that's telling you they love you, they don't know what that means. And for me at this season in my life, I'm more empathetic and sad for that being, that they don't know what it means to be loved with all fullness included. That's tragic. And it's tragic that we as an institution, as a church, and as people try to take what doesn't belong to us and try to take what God has given someone. That is 
not okay, and it's incredibly harmful. So yeah, those are all the pieces of my life on the floor right now. Those are all the things that I'm working my way through because of violent drama. Something happens in your spirit. Something shifts when your life is threatened. Of course, because of PTSD, my brain is completely rewired, but something happens in your body and your being that I haven't quite figured out how to name. But what I know is that joy is so important to me, but now grief is equally just as important to me. That in order to live a life that isn't me hiding in a closet or hiding under my bed sheets or hiding from the world because I'm afraid that something bad is going to happen to me again, that somebody's going to try to take my life. I have to live with joy and grief. I have to realize that those, those two things and all of the emotions that waver in between run parallel to each other. That harm and healing go hand in hand. And to an extent that is terrifying, but also liberating. Liberating to know that it's okay to sit in your grief. And it's okay to have joy inside of the grief. It's okay to not know when you're going to be okay. And that having emotion is valid and needed. Running away from my harm isn't fathomable. If I continue to run from my harm, I will never be able to live fully into who I am and who I will be becoming for the rest of my life. There are days when I am absolutely shattered. There are days when I am terrified, scared, and massively depressed. I volley between anxiety bouts and breaths of fresh air where I am not scared. But I am clinging to grief and joy with human resilience in a way I have never done before because my life depends on it. Because discovering who I am depends on it. Because putting these pieces back together in a way that might just be even healthier for me than before depends on it. I've told you all of this information in my story because I wanted you to know that you're not alone. That if you're hurting right now, that if somebody has hurt you, it's not fair. It's not your fault. You didn't deserve that, but you're going to find a way through it. I've switched that around. It's not about finding a way out, because if you find a way out, then you never dealt with it. You're going to find a way through it. And you do not have to do it alone in isolation, because you were never meant to do life in isolation. I recently found a notebook that had a list in it a list of goals that I wanted to accomplish, and it was from my 29th birthday, which is the year that I got all my tattoos, cut my hair off, and was affirmed at that church that I talked about. It was the year that I realized that God really did want me to go to seminary. It was the year that I realized that I couldn't just care about queer folks, I needed to care about all of the folks. 
and that justice was really important to me, and loving people well was really important to me. And on the bottom of this list, I wrote, let go of hurt. And I wrote a reflection about that, and this is how I want to end this. You as you are and in becoming is a yes. You are always a yes. The list that I found from year 29 was the year I started saying yes and forming a healthier relationship with no. A year I began putting things down so I could pick things up. In the last two years, I've realized letting go of hurt was a journey and a forever process as harm and healing run alongside each other. But letting go of it from the clenched fist of festering anger is a worthy cause to take up as you put harm down. And although people may disappoint you or let you down, you have room to see and practice acknowledging those who do not let you down, as well as how you're showing up for your own being. If someone claims that notion is emotional or off-putting, keep going. Emotions are meant to be felt, lived, and moved, and walked through. You are always a yes. All of you as you are, you are yes. <laughs>